Government isn't the solution, it is the problem, or at least a significant part of the problem. That was the wisdom we received from the 40th President of the United States, Ronald Reagan, who had many, many famous quotes about government. One of my favorites is, no government ever voluntarily reduces itself in size. Government programs, once launched, never disappear. Actually, a government bureau is the nearest thing to eternal life we'll ever see on this earth. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie Dury, and welcome to another National Preview Online podcast. If you'd like to subscribe to the show and have not already done so, we please ask that you do so. And you can do this by one of three methods. You can go into the iTunes App Store for you iPhone users, the Google Play Store for you Android users, Or you can go to either of those two places, regardless of which device you use, and simply download the free Podbean app. That's our hosting service, and you can subscribe that way. I think it's much more preferable if you use your native podcast aggregator app, but you can use either one. They're all great, and Podbean does give you some advantages. It allows you to make uh, quotes, responses to individual episodes, which a lot of people like to do, so you can do it either way. Just search for the NPO podcast. If you'd like to reach me, Jamie Dury, simply email me at National Preview Online, and I'd be happy to answer any questions you may have and address those issues on the show, if there's issues you'd like me to address that we have not already done so. Well, so moving right along, we have government. Now, government is the problem, and I warned you that you never have more of a government problem than you have when you have a liberal administration. Everyone thinks of liberals as protecting people's rights. Liberals, the left, it's those bad conservatives that always seek to use the full weight of government to smother people and stifle creativity. Well, just look around you. Look around what's happened this past year under the pandemic. Where has freedom most been in jeopardy? It's in your blue states. States like California, where they're getting ready to kick Gavin Newsom out on his rear end, where he needs to be. It was in the state of New Jersey, where the governor decided to arbitrarily close all indoor dining throughout the state. It was in the state of Pennsylvania, where this transgendered sicko that that, uh, President Biden wishes to make the Undersecretary of Health and Human Services, Rachel Levine, um, manage the state's Uh, COVID-19 response, resulting in the deaths of thousands of people who, like in New York and California and Michigan and New Jersey, perished in nursing homes when those nursing homes were mandated to take these patients. Of course, she was very careful to move her elderly parent out of a nursing home into a very special and COVID-free private facility, but that's the way of the liberals. Do as we say, not as we do. This is good for you. It isn't good for me. We know this. And lastly, but not leastly, the great state of New York, where Il Duce, Benito Cuomo, murdered 15,000 people with his incompetence by sending them to their deaths in nursing homes. This is what you get with liberal government. Not Not less government, but more government. And more government generally walks hand in hand with less freedom. Now let's juxtapose this to what's going on in the present day foot that I thought I would bring to your attention, because I think you'll find them all um, very interesting. First, let's talk about some quasi-good news, but mostly bad. 
The COVID-19 relief bill has been passed. $1.9 trillion of new spending on top of what has already been spent. That's a lot of scratch, considering we don't have it. Considering that, we, that our economy is only about a, a 3 or $5 trillion economy every year. Mm-hmm. How can we possibly spend this $1.9 trillion and where are we getting it from? And the bigger question is, who's getting it? Might not be so bad if it all went to Americans and it all went to COVID relief, but that's not what's happening here. The House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy spoke out about this, saying the swamp is back. And that this COVID-19 relief bill just spends and caters to special interests. Which is one of the reasons why he said they forced it through in the dead of night, around 2 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Passed by a vote of 219 to 212 with every Republican voting against it. Now, we know the House is very closely divided as the result of the election in 2020. Uh, There's only about a 12-person majority, I think, in the House. Excuse me, the the Republicans picked up the better part of 13 seats. Two Democrats uh, joined the Republicans voted against it, Jared Golden of Maine and Kurt Schrader of Oregon, cast votes in opposition to the bill. McCarthy said, for his part, don't call it a rescue bill. Don't call it a relief bill. For the American people, it's a loser. Now, this package includes $1,400 in direct uh, direct payments to most Americans and $20 billion on a national plan to vaccinate against the virus. But $20 billion is a drop in the bucket out of $1.9 trillion. Where does the rest of the money go? It also contains $270 million for arts and humanities endowments, $200 million for museums and libraries, and $100 million for an electric train in Silicon Valley. Now tell me how that is part of COVID relief. Like McCarthy said, it's a blue state bailout to the tune of $350 billion, sending mismanaged states free federal money would encourage the same mismanagement that led to many of their problems in the first place. And this is exactly what Trump had opposed. These states wanted money. They didn't want money for COVID. They wanted all kinds of money as a way to get their way out of debt that they created for themselves. And this is the reason, ladies and gentlemen, reasons like this. This is the reason why so many of your fellow New Yorkers, your so fellow, uh, so many of your fellow uh, Michigan residents, Californians, Pennsylvanians, New Jerseyans died in nursing homes because the more people they could keep treated in, in facilities that they had control over or regulated, uh, anything that wasn't a federal facility, they received money from the feds based on the number of COVID cases and based on the number of COVID deaths. So it was in their best interest to count anyone who died as having died of COVID. Even though they didn't die of COVID, they may have died with COVID. Guy gets into a motorcycle accident, they do a test on his remains, he had COVID. It was the motorcycle going at 90 miles an hour and split open his coconut against the piling that killed him, but because he had COVID in his system, he is considered to have died, with, died uh, from COVID. Even though he didn't die from COVID, he died with COVID. But they get the money. They get the money. We've explained this before. People in hospice care, dying of lung cancer, they test their remains, they had COVID. Death goes down as COVID, even though it's cancer. This is corrupt. This is corrupt as all get out. 
Trump fought that. Now that the Democrats are controlling all three um, branches of government at the executive and legislative branch, they don't control the courts yet, although some people would say they do, but they control both houses of Congress. They control the White House. So now they're bailing out these mismanaged blue states with your money. This got jammed through. Now the turtle came out of his shell to complain, Mitch McConnell. He said just one provision of their bill would kill 1.5 million jobs on its own, uh, uh, wrote McConnell, presumably referring to the inclusion of the $15 federal minimum wage. And that's true. A February study by the uh, Congressional Budget Office found that raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour by 2025 would cost 1.4 million jobs over four years, although it would raise wages for around 27 million people and lift 900,000 people out of poverty. Let me just put this to rest and explain this once and for all. For those of you who don't know or have been misinformed, let me explain. The minimum wage was never designed, never, repeat what I said, never designed to be the standard for what someone needs to make as a living wage, meaning an hourly rate of compensation that if you did it for 40 hours a week full-time, you could live on. That was never the intention of the minimum wage. The sole purpose of the minimum wage was to set a standard whereby no work performed by any American should be compensated at uh, at a rate less than that or below that. Anything lower than that, we would consider indentured servitude. So there's a minimum wage. And that minimum wage being lower has resulted in many college kids, high school kids, kids off from school, getting summer jobs where they can earn money. Raising a wage just for the sake of raising it is going to cause employers who hire these temporary employees to not hire them at all and reduce the workforce. So the people who actually get the job will naturally make more, but many people will be out of work. Now, working at a job that requires virtually no skill and no intellect, like working in McDonald's, and I'm not denigrating people who work in McDonald's. Please don't misunderstand me. But this is hardly specialized work. This is work that's within the capability of anyone of marginal intelligence. Using as an excuse, I can't live off this wage you pay me, that's why I need to get $15 an hour, is not a valid argument because these things were never intended to be living wage jobs. They were primarily intended to be manned by young people, unless you're a person who's hired as a manager or something like that, but it's not meant to be a living wage. You're being paid what the work you're doing is worth. You want to make more than 15 You need to make more than you're making, you want to make better than 15 or 15 and up, then do something to elevate your position, either provide more in the way of services to your employer, increase your skill set, or educate yourself for a different line of work that is compensated above $15 an hour. You don't simply say, well, I'm not going to do any more work, I'm not going to spend any more time, I'm not going to educate myself any further, I'm not going to become an expert at anything else, but I think you should pay me more because I need more to live on. Sorry. That argument fails under my standard. But this is what's happening. You're getting liberalism, government, doing all of this and forcing it down your throat. And there is still more. The next thing that the Democrats do, the liberals do, although they're out for free speech, they attempt 
to control uh, free speech. The late, great William F. Buckley Jr. used to famously say, Democrats or liberals are always in favor of hearing other views. And then they're shocked and outraged to find out that there are other views. They only want to hear what they want to say. They're very, very big on the defense of free speech, as long as you agree with them. To that end, the House Democrats, according to this article in the Times, are attempting to pressure TV carriers to not carry, to deplatform certain news outlets. And this could trigger a lawsuit, according to Alan Dershowitz, the professor emeritus of Harvard University, who's probably the foremost expert on the United States Constitution in this country. When the First Amendment says Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech, it's been interpreted to mean take no action. It doesn't have to be a law. The First Amendment applies to presidents, to governors, to mayors, to anybody who can abridge the freedom of speech. And I think these letters abridge the freedom of speech. This is what Dershowitz said during a recent TV appearance on Newsmax. Now, Representatives Jerry McInerney of California, Democrat, of course, and Anna G. Eshoo, Democrat, California, of course, sent a dozen letters to 12 different carriers this week urging them to deplatform or otherwise take action against, are you ready? Fox News, Newsmax, and One America News for allegedly spreading misleading information about the January 6th Capitol breach and the COVID-19 pandemic. What's the misleading information? Because the information differs with what you say happened? You don't like it that other people are pointing out to you that Trump couldn't possibly have started this uh, event by what he said that day because we now have Twitter feed proving that these organizations were attempting to coordinate this thing for weeks in advance. And by the way, I still haven't heard anyone adequately address this Twitter feed. Parler was shut down by Amazon and other people because they felt that uh, they were used to promote violence and uh, such against uh, people on January 6th and other things, inflammatory speech, not stopping people, which is a crock. How come Twitter, which has been responsible for many uh, violent episodes where it was used to coordinate information like during the riots and the uh, George Floyd protests, they're not shut down, though. Only the conservative outlets get shut down. And isn't it interesting that the disinformation apparently only takes place on conservative networks? It can't possibly dis- be disinformation taking place on ABC or CNN uh, or CBS or, or uh, NBC or MSNBC or any of those places. I showed you yesterday, well, not yesterday, I'm sorry, the day before. We didn't do a show yesterday, which is why we're doing one today. Um, how ABC took that exchange during the Senate confirmation hearings yesterday between Senator Rand Paul and, Senator, and uh, Rachel Levine uh, and, and tried to make it uh, sound like Senator Paul had uh, gone over the line. He was asking her a very pointed question, a very, very relevant question, about what her position was about the growing uh, tendency uh, or proclivity on the part of people in government and lobbying groups to decide to let children of a pubescent or prepubescent age who are supposedly experiencing transgender internal conflicts, making the decision themselves as to whether or not they should have their breast amputated or their genitalia amputated. And he thinks that that's a horrific thing and it borders on child abuse and that the parents should be involved. 
Dr. Levine couldn't bring herself, himself, itself to uh, put forth an answer, just kept rattling off the same psychobabble. These are important things. They classified that exchange as inflammatory speech and how she deftly deflected it. That's not misinformation. That's not a misinterpretation of what actually happened. Please. For four years, they hawked a Russia hoax on you after investigated by a special prosecutor. No one could find anything. That's not misinformation. They told you about Michael Brown. Hands up, don't shoot. Hands up, don't shoot. Michael Brown was a thug. He did a, he did a strong-arm robbery in a convenience store. He was identified by a police officer as the suspect in that armed robbery. He was not running away. He did not have his back to the officer. He did not have his hands up and say, don't shoot. On the contrary, when these people were put under oath and asked to testify, three separate investigations, state, local, and federal, substantiated that the officer did nothing wrong and that, in fact, the forensics show that Michael Brown, far from turning his back and running away, ran towards the radio car and was actually partially in the radio car, attempting to wrest that officer's gun from him, presumably to shoot him and kill him with it. That's why his DNA was all over the inside, because when that gun went off and the blood splattered, it went on the inside of the radio car. That's not spreading misinformation. People didn't riot. Lives weren't lost on the basis of that misinformation. So it's only Fox News, the OAN, One America News Network, and Newsmax that are spreading disinformation. They pointedly asked the carriers if they were planning on carrying the networks both now and beyond the contract renewal date. Dershowitz said, that's not a question, that's a threat. And that comes within the First Amendment. And I think there is room for a potential lawsuit for a declaratory judgment at least, saying that Congress has no authority to tell or suggest or imply to cable operators that they should take people off the air as, a, as the result of content. That would violate the First Amendment. There's been no comment from the offices of either congressperson who have brought this forth. But the erosion continues, ladies and gentlemen. This is not just limited to this. When liberals get in charge, they erode freedoms on all fronts. And I do mean all fronts. Now I'm told they're going after Steve Bannon. You remember who Steve Bannon is? Steve Bannon was the um, former advisor to President Trump. Now, Steve Bannon was indicted by the federal government supposedly for misappropriation of funds or profiting from some organization. In any event, there's a lot of evidence that suggests uh, a lot of people are saying that this was a witch hunt, this was just done to get back at Trump. The bottom line, uh, to cut through this, because this is not about Steve Bannon's indiscretions, if whether or not he did them, it's about what I'm about to tell you now, which should be even more concerned. Trump issued Steve Bannon a pardon for anything emanating from those charges. That's it. The power of the president to pardon is absolute. But the Democrats don't want to hear it. So what have they done? Well, I'm going to tell you. They went to a judge and they filed a motion to the judge asking that judge not to dismiss the indictment against Steve Bannon, despite the fact that President Trump has pardoned him. Now, when a person's pardoned, that's the end of it. 
There's nothing you can do about it. And they're citing different cases. They're citing, um, I believe, Nixon versus the United States. That's the case. Nixon versus the United States, which I assume is Richard Nixon. Now, look. You can cite cases all you want. You can try and make very nuanced arguments that, well, since the conviction hasn't happened yet, the, the pardon shouldn't be done. There are things under the law known as a running pardon. These are more having to do with technicalities than anything else. But let's cite a bigger precedent. And I, I'm glad that they did this because I want to revisit this issue. I want to show and put on full display the hypocrisy just so we understand each other. The argument here is that they think it's political that Trump pardoned Bannon in his own self-interest as on one point and number two, that he has no, no right to pardon Bannon and that the fact that he pardoned Bannon doesn't remove Bannon from criminal um, uh, vulnerability because the, in, the charge was only an indictment. There wasn't a trial. It wasn't litigated. He hasn't been convicted yet. So therefore, the pardon is premature. Well, I have the answer to that. And it's not a case. It's an event. It's called President Bill Clinton and Mark Rich. Now, for those of you who are too young, you millennials who weren't old enough to remember these things at the time, uh, this was took place, this pardon took place on the last day of the Clinton administration, January 20th, before noon, uh, 2001. So let me give you a little history. In 1983, a man by the name of Mark Rich and his partner, he had been a big trader, big, big money guy. And his partner, Pincus Green, were indicted on 65 criminal counts in federal court for the Southern District of New York by then U.S. Attorney and future New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani on charges of income tax evasion, wire fraud, and racketeering. If convicted on all counts, Rich and his partner, Pincus Green, could have faced prison terms of 300 years. Yes, you heard me right. 300 years. Now, this indictment stemmed from the fact that they were trading with Iran during the oil embargo. Now, this was at a time when Iranian revolutionaries were still holding American citizens hostage. This also is earlier than you probably couldn't remember. This was back in 79 when the Iranian embassy was taken, uh, the American embassy in Iran was taken over and the hostages were held uh, for about a year uh, and they were only let go after Ronald Reagan was elected and he made it known in no uncertain terms that once he was sworn in, all bets were off, any deals that had been made before, any negotiations made before were over and they'd be starting from, from square one. And the Iranian government relented and released those hostages after they had been in in prison for all that time. Now, the charges, the indictment was filed. Let's see what we got here. Now, at the time, this was the biggest tax evasion case in history. Now, once he learned of the plans for the indictment, Mark Rich, I don't recall what happened to Pincus Green, but Mark Rich fled to Switzerland, and he always insisted that he was not guilty. He never returned to the U.S. to answer the charges. His companies eventually pleaded to 35 counts of tax evasion civilly and paid $90 million in fines. But given the amount of money that Rich made, I don't think that $90 million bothered him at all. But it goes on. It's a very, very 
convoluted tale, so let me tell it. I think you'll find it interesting. Rich himself remained on the Federal Bureau of Investigation's 10 Most Wanted Fugitives list for many, many years. He narrowly avoided being captured in various countries like Finland, Great Great Britain, Germany, and Jamaica. Fearing his arrest, he did not even return to the United States to go to his daughter's funeral. And that was in 1996. He was certain they would grab him since he was still an international fugitive. On January 20th, 2001, just hours before leaving office, President Bill Clinton granted Mark Rich what would go on to become a very extremely controversial presidential pardon. Leonard Garment, who was Richard Richard Nixon's acting special counsel, who had replaced John Dean during Watergate, had both Rich and Rich's business partner, Pincus Green, as a client since the spring of 1975, with Scooter Libby representing them as their attorney for the pardon until 2000. You remember Scooter Libby? Scooter Libby was the man they prosecuted wrongly uh, in the outing of, uh, that was it, uh, Valerie Plame or something, ridiculous, even though Richard Armitage is the one who outed her. They get Scooter Libby, they find him, and uh, George W. Bush pardoned uh, Scooter Libby before he left office. But in the spring of 2000, Jack Quinn became their attorney. Now, several of Clinton's strongest supporters distanced themselves from this decision. Showed you that it was that controversial that even Clinton's supporters distanced themselves. Former President Jimmy Carter, a fellow Democrat, said, I don't think there is any doubt that some of the factors in his pardon were attributable to his large gifts. And wait till you hear more about that. In my opinion, that was disgraceful. Now, Clinton, on his part, uh, later expressed regret for having given Rich the pardon, saying that it wasn't worth the damage to his reputation. Now, quite frankly, I'll dispute that because I don't know how much more you can damage your reputation by pardoning a a fugitive like Mark Rich, given that you were a rapist. I mean, a rapist is a lot lower. I, I... I, I don't find Clinton's pardoning of Rich, although I find it contemptible, I don't find it anywhere near as contemptible as raping women after woman after woman, biting them on the lip in the same fashion, and then putting together assassinate character assassination squads to try and impugn these people's character and ruin them like they would have done with Monica Lewinsky if she didn't save... Um, that uh, that dress with the DNA on it from Bill Clinton, they would have destroyed that young girl's reputation, a 21-year-old girl. That's disgraceful. So I find it laughable that he was now subsequently worried about damaging his reputation. You didn't have a reputation, Bill. After what you did to those women, you had no reputation. You're a psychopath. Clinton's critics argued, um, they alleged, rather, that Rich's pardon had been bought because Denise Rich, in fact, his ex-wife, had given more than $1 million to Clinton's political party, the Democratic Party. Now, remember, there's limits to how much you can donate to a given candidate, but you can give an almost unlimited amount to the party at large and let them disseminate it as they see fit. And the president is the de facto head of his party. So since Clinton was the president, he had more than undue influence into how much of that million stayed in the Democratic Party and how much of it went to him. 
And this million included more than 100,000 to the Senate campaign of Hillary Clinton, Bill Clinton's wife, and 450,000 to the Clinton Library during Clinton's time in office. Clinton also cited clemency pleas he had received from the Israeli government, including then-Prime Minister Ehud Barak. Now, why did the Israelis want to get involved in this? Well, because Rich had made uh, very large donations to Israeli charitable foundations over the years, and many senior officials in the Israeli government, such as Simone Perez, argued uh, behind the scenes on his behalf. Leading figures of the Jewish world, like Abraham Foxman, the head of the Anti-Defamation League, uh, whose that, and that organization received a quarter of a million dollars from Rich, also wrote to President Clinton uh, requesting that he give a pardon to Mark Rich. Other Jewish leaders were uh, Shlomo Benami, the foreign minister, Michael Steinhardt, a philanthropist and CEO, Rabbi Irving Greenberg, chairman of the United States Holocaust Memorial. There was a lot of reasons why these Israelis were getting involved. Supposedly, he had helped the the, the Mossad in certain things. Um, this is speculation now. Speculation that another rationale for his pardon uh, involved his involvement with the Israeli intelligence community. They say that he helped finance the Mossad's operations and had supplied Israel with strategic amounts of Iranian oil through a secret pipeline. Uh, an aide to Rich who had persuaded Denise Rich to personally ask Clinton to review Rich's pardon request was a former chief of the Mossad. Another former Mossad chief also urged Clinton to pardon Rich, who he said had routinely allowed intelligence agents to use his offices around the world. Now, a federal prosecutor, Mary Jo White, whom I'm familiar with, was appointed by John Ashcroft to investigate Clinton's last-minute pardon of Rich. Now, John Ashcroft became the attorney general under George W. Bush, because they t- thought there was something um, a little fugazi about it. Now, she was gone uh, before she got a chance to do anything. She was replaced by, guess who? James Comey, who went on to be the FBI director. Comey supposedly was critical of Clinton's pardons, and then, of course, of Den- uh, Deputy Attorney General Eric Holder, who went on to become Attorney General under um, Barack Obama. Now, Jack Quinn, the lawyer I told you who replaced uh, Scooter Libby, he had previously been counsel to Clinton's White House and counsel to his chief, uh, to the vice president as well, Al Gore. So there was a lot of funny things going on. But at the end of the day, he gave him the pardon. And in an op-ed in February of 2001, Clinton, who's now out of office, it was February 18th, tried to explain why he had pardoned Rich, noting that U.S. tax professors Bernard Wolfman and Harvard Law School of the Harvard Law School and Martin Ginsburg of Georgetown University Law Center had concluded that no crime had been committed and that Rich's company's tax reporting position had been reasonable. In the same essay, Clinton listed um, Scooter Libby as one of the three distinguished Republican lawyers who supported a pardon for rich. Now, that's pretty rich, no pun intended. So because two academics decide to write a paper and do a research project and include that no crime has been committed, that means that we should just, oh, well, given that, we'll just throw out that indictment. The people who indicted are wrong. The investigators at the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District who put all this evidence together are wrong. We just got to get rid of it. 
And if he really felt he did nothing wrong, and he really felt that the evidence was that overwhelming, why did he run and flee to Switzerland, a non-extradition country, where he lived to the end of his days? They don't tell you that. These are things they don't tell you. But that's what he did. Mark Rich got his pardon and never returned to the United States. He died back in 2013. But people still talk about this pardon because it's that controversial. And when you have attempts now by the left to try and deny the pardon of Steve Bannon, who didn't do anything remotely approaching what Mark Rich's led to do, Mark Rich's actions in light of the oil embargo against the Iranians was almost bordering on treasonous. Uh, and he certainly deserved to be prosecuted. And he was an international fugitive. Now, I'm just going to get into the end of it now. Eric Holder, who I said was an undersecretary or an under attorney general, deputy attorney general, I'm sorry, at the time, um, he recommended that the pardon not go through the normal pardon channels. The normal pardon channels is the White House has a pardon unit where all these requests for pardons, because every president gets a lot of them, some grant more than others. Obama granted thousands, mostly to a bunch of radicals. But they get these pardons, and this team evaluates it. They look for what this person has done following their conviction, or I should say their, their reintroduction into society after their prison sentence has expired. Uh, have they rehabilitated themselves? Are they deserving of a pardon? So forth, so on. Before they begin to even present it, to the president for consideration, owing to the necessity or the absence of time, uh, and because Rich would not have met the criteria, because part of the criteria is to show contrition, acceptance of responsibility. Rich never admitted his guilt. Rich never accepted any responsibility. Rich did not stand and fight his charges. Rich fled like a coward to a foreign country with a non-extradition treaty with the United States. He didn't meet the criteria by any standard you care to name. Instead, this thing was end-run around this unit and put directly in front of Clinton. And on the other side of Clinton was probably a pile of cash or the uh, equivalent of that in theoretical uh, terms and that he knew he was being promised a lot of money if he signed it. And so he did. He signed it in the last hours of his presidency. And the only reason why the thing went away is because for all their criticism of George W. while he was running in the hanging chads in Florida, George Bush, to protect the office of the presidency, not to protect Bill Clinton, said there will be no more further investigation into this matter. The power of the president to pardon is absolute. And that was the end of it. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that should be the end of it now. If the Democrats were very pleased that a Republican president stifled the investigation of their Democratic hero on the grounds that he was protecting the office and cited the fact that the power of the president to pardon is absolute, then they have to live with that. They just can't change it every 10 or 20 years because it suits them, because they have a grudge against Donald Trump. Government is this way. Whether it's trying to compel Carriers to deep platform Fox News, OAN News, or Newsmax. Whether it's trying to undermine a presidential pardon. Whether it's restricting people's rights with these ridiculous COVID lockdowns. The government is always looking to enhance the power within itself. As was observed by William F. Buckley Jr., when he was closing 
a firing line debate with these words, he quoted three great Americans. Thomas Jefferson, for one, who the left always quotes, the perennial liberal, Thomas Jefferson. They don't like John Adams, but John Adams was the man, was the first president never to own slaves. Of the first 12 presidents, only John Adams and his son John Quincy Adams never owned slaves. Thomas Jefferson, for all his talk of rights and his affinity with the French Revolution, he owned slaves. They were only freed after he was dead. But Thomas Jefferson said, remember that government can only do something for the people in respect as it can do something to the people. And John Adams wasn't wrong when he said the government is always turning every contingency into an excuse to enhance the power within itself. And Woodrow Wilson wasn't wrong when he began his book by saying the history of liberalism is the history of man's efforts to restrain the growth of government. Now, how ironic is that? Liberalism, the history of liberalism, was man's efforts to restrain the growth of government. Liberals today are only interested in expanding government. The only people who are looking to restrain the growth of government are conservatives. So if you're really a true liberal in the historical sense, not the current sense, and you really want to see a maximum of freedom, you need to have a government restrained from growing. And the only movement, the only party willing to do that is the conservative movement, the conservative ideology. If that gives you a moment of pause, perhaps it's time to reconsider your priorities and rethink who you need to vote for in the next election. For National Preview Online, I'm Jamie Dury. <laughs>